Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensible Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensibleplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Today, we are taking a dive into a very complex world that involves habitat fragmentation, corridors, and plant-pollinator interactions, and how they might change with disturbance and climate change and every other thing humanity can throw at them. This may seem like it's going to be a really big doom and gloom kind of conversation, but I assure you there are many reasons for hope. And joining us to talk about this is Dr. Julian Rosasco, who has spent time in a variety of habitats trying to understand complex ecological dynamics in a way that makes sense so that we can actually use these data to make conservation actions more tangible, more real, and more successful. I don't want to steal any of his thunder, but before we get into that conversation, I just want to say this podcast can't exist without support. There's a lot of great ways to chip in some support, and one of the best is to become a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. There's a lot of great kickbacks for supporting the show with a little financial contribution each month, but I literally couldn't be doing this without my patrons, so thank you to everyone who has kicked in a little bit of financial support thus far. Once again, that's patreon.com slash plants. Consider supporting the show today. But that is entirely enough out of me. Let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation, Dr. Julian Rosasco. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Julian Rosasco, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you today, but let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Sure. Yeah, uh, I'm an assistant professor at the University of Colorado at Boulder in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. Um, the kind of work that we do uh, in our lab is we're interested in in how biodiversity, um, how human impacts like uh like fragmentation and uh, climate change and species invasions affect biodiversity. Uh, and we, we uh, work on a, a variety of, of taxa, but uh, in particular, uh, we do a lot of work with uh, insects and plant-insect uh, interactions. And we do research in the Rocky Mountains and also some work in the, in the Southeast and South Carolina. Nice. And so where did this all kind of start for you? I mean, were you a plant kid, an insect kid, or just kind of like a nature nut in general, and it evolved from there? Or did you kind of stumble into it through internships or education? Um, sort of, yeah. When I was a kid, so I, I was originally from Argentina. Nice. And uh, moved to the U.S. when, when I was six, and we mostly, I mostly grew up in Oklahoma. Um, and I would say as a kid, I was really interested in uh, I was interested in things like, uh, you know, dinosaurs and nature, mm-hmm. but more than anything, like uh, the idea of exploring mm-hmm. uh, and discovering things. I really liked that. Um, and I was also really into history. Um, and so I think that I can still see some some connections because I'm I really like to think about sort of like, um, you know, what the natural world uh, was like before all of these these human impacts. So we go to natural areas and try to imagine, you know, a world um, uh, where, where human impacts uh, weren't so so evident. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that sort of stuck with me. I guess a, a love for uh, wild places and and biodiverse places and nice. uh, you know trying to make the most of them and preserve their their biodiversity. Nice. And, you know, there's a lot of ways to get stuck into that. So how did you kind of, 
I mean, I can kind of see the connection starting to form there is like disturbance is a human thing. You got to understand history to understand that, but also loving nature and how does that impact? But where did you kind of put the pieces together? Because there's like a million different ways you can bite off any version of that. But to, to kind of fall into the, the realm you have with research, how did that kind of all kind of fall together for you? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, it kind of it kind of took me a while because I think when I started college, I wasn't sure I didn't go straight into even a biology major. I kind of bounced around from some different majors. You know, I I, I, I was guided pr- probably by a not very smart thing of just asking my peers what they were doing and doing <laughs> the same thing. Nice. Um but fortunately, eventually, about halfway through, uh, I started working at, at uh, I went to the University of Oklahoma, and I um, I started volunteering at the Natural History Museum and learning about some of the work they did. So the curator there, uh, Dr. Michael Mares, would go to, you know, my home country of Argentina hmm. and, um, and, you know, go on these long uh, field expeditions to remote areas and discover new species. And I thought that was, uh, just, just the coolest thing. And I didn't know that, uh, you know, you could make a living doing that sort of thing. Um, and then I took, um, an ecology class and then I, I really liked sort of the, the part about, um, you know, scientific discoveries and ecology and figuring out how the natural world works. And during that class, I advertised an REU, and uh, it's the only REU that I applied for, and I happened to get it. Nice. These days, it's much more, <laughs> much more competitive. And then um, that really clicked because uh, so I did it at uh, Miami University, where, and I did some work on uh, invasive honeysuckle Ooh. and looking at um, at sort of you know the dynamics of invasion, doing a mix of field work and doing some remote sensing work and and uh, and I really love that. Um, and I love the idea of because um, I was a little bit burnt out on on school with all mm. the studying and exam after exam. <laughs> yeah. And so the, that experience as an REU really let me know that if you know if this is what being a grad student is like, sign me up because I, I really liked it. Nice. And so from there, uh, after I graduated, I took a job working in an experiment that I still work on, a, a corridor experiment. So I really love the idea of, of corridors to link up um, these wild patches of wild habitat. And so it's an experiment in South Carolina that's designed to test how corridors um, affect biodiversity and different ecological processes. So that sounded really, uh, really fun uh, to me. So after I graduated, I worked as a, as a technician and that got my foot in the door into grad school. So uh, then I applied with my PhD advisor, Doug Levy, and I did my PhD at the University of Florida, um, asking questions. So I was interested in, uh, well, you know, corridors are meant to move uh, uh, species around or individuals around. Uh, what about some some species that we don't want moving around, like invasive yeah. species? And so I did uh, work with with uh, fire ants in this corridor experiment to Ooh. see how they respond to to corridors, and then really got fell in love with ants, and I've been like them ever since. Nice, yeah. And during my PhD, I also spent some time um, back in in Argentina. I, I went and visited uh, uh, Diego Vasquez in in Mendoza. So I was reading papers about ecological networks interaction networks and I wanted to learn more. So I spent a semester there 
wow. and uh, made a you know lifelong friend and <laughs> and collaborator and and developed a uh, a research interest in the, the dynamics of plant pollinator networks, which is something that that um, that we've continued to work on uh, ever since. Wow. That's a really cool trajectory, and it just goes to show you how putting in that effort early, trying things out, right? Sometimes you learn you don't like it, but sometimes it hooks you, and then <laughs> next thing you know, it's an entire career trajectory <laughs> just laid out in front of you. Yeah, it's funny how you know these these decisions at the time that were uh, you know didn't feel like big decisions turned out to be really important. Right. You know, I think I, I talk to a lot of people, and they're like, I could never have predicted it. And I think it's because of that. You you think it's a non-significant sort of like, oh, I'll just try this out. And then, you know, again, either you learn you do or you don't. But sometimes it can really light a fire. And I think that kind of lends the, the, the seemingly insignificant moment of it lends to this idea of not being able to predict really anything in life. Yeah. Nice. So you are working at a very important time in our history on this planet, but also the planet's history on topics that are increasingly becoming more and more of the focal point. And you've mentioned a lot of buzzwords that have already bled themselves into sort of the common conversations that you're hearing, you know, ideas of corridors, biodiversity, fragmentation, disturbance, climate change, you know, these are all things we're facing more and more each and every year. And so I think it's very timely, but also it's a really interesting set of conditions you're faced with because i can't imagine really any scientist not having to factor in the human element to all of this the disturbance element to all of this especially as it comes to sort of corridors and patches of habitat in a sea of increasingly human dominated landscapes yeah yeah totally so that's the you know the, the motivation from for the research that we do it's we're interested in uh in questions that can have uh applications for conserving biodiversity uh, and then at the same time, uh, you know, basic questions to understand how uh, how nature nature works. But yeah, it's a it's a strong it's a strong uh, motivator, and um, uh, and and some of those um, you know we try to uh, control for some of those aspects. So for example, in the in the corridor experiment, um, one of the one of the cool things about it is that. Um, in, in the real world, it's often very difficult uh, because of uh, confounding effects to understand <laughs> effects of habitat uh, fragmentation and, and corridors. And in this experiment, we can we can uh, control many of those those things that we um, uh, that are more difficult than you know quote unquote real landscapes. Sure. <laughs> yeah. It's tough, I can imagine, but, you know, these kind of large-scale ecological experiments are vital to our understanding because of that control element. But, you know, when you think of the two realms that you d dive into quite a bit, plants and insects, I mean, they are inextricably linked to one another as we understand it. But I couldn't think of two more opposite ends of sort of the biological spectrum in terms of behavior and and, and movability on the landscape, like how they get around. And so when you think about this in the context of corridors and the way these things are interacting, it's almost like you're studying something in super, super slow motion and then insects, which are like the fastest of fast motion, especially when it comes to you, the human, <laughs> who has to somehow sit right in the middle of those two timelines. Is that a challenge uh, when it comes to trying to get good research uh, done on this sort of subject? Um, yeah, yeah, it is a challenge. So in the case of the the corridor experiment, I, I mostly did my work on ants, and I and I uh, I think that there's a, a lot of uh, a, 
a lot of, uh, you can think about ant ecology very similarly in lots of ways to plant ecology because mm. they have uh, a central a central nest and, you know, the individuals that are, you know, maybe like leaves or branches. Or, <laughs> I like that. Um, and some of the colonies, you know, last for a long time and some of them, some of them don't. They, you know, they compete for, for space and resources. So that in that sense, it's they're kind of similar. Um, but in our work with plant pollinator interactions, it, it's uh, very different. So it can be very different in terms of, uh, you know, the scales at which the mm. which these individuals are operating. So there, you're, you're right. There could be, you know, um, you know, a pollinator that's that's uh, you know whizzing around all over the the county, interacting with plants that are much more stationary. Right. But there's a conundrum in this is is you see it all the time. And increasingly, our natural areas are getting smaller and smaller. And this is where the idea of corridors comes into play. But before we even consider corridors, we have to think about shrinking area on the, you know, the impacts of that on insect and plant life, you know, and really every other wildlife uh, you can mention. But in your world, I mean, this is why I, I actually found your work in the first place is trying to understand or at least get your head wrapped around how when an area becomes smaller, you're increasing the surface area to volume ratio. So edge effect goes up, but also the ability of those chunks, ever shrinking chunks to support life. Is it always decreasing or is it kind of one of those, it depends scenarios? Uh, it depends. And then it's, it's also complicated because what you <laughs> observe isn't necessarily what, what is uh, sort of like the, you know, the equilibrium biodiversity um, because you know some things might respond really quickly. So, mm. say you know, maybe uh, you know insects that were making their habitat if it no longer is no longer suitable, they might respond uh, more quickly. And you can have some long-lived uh, plants that can stick around for a long time, but are sort of doomed to eventually go extinct with these uh, uh, extinction deaths. And you can mm. even think about extinction deaths for the unique interactions that occur be, uh, between them, which is uh, something that a, a postdoc of mine uh, w- that I co-advise with uh, Diego Vasquez, Mika Santos, uh, works on is, is the, the extinction debts of, of um, uh, plants, uh, insects, and their interactions. Wow. Yeah, the extinction debt idea is kind of scary because, you know, oftentimes these small fragments, which are still important, get protected because XYZ plant species is there. It's the only record left in that county sometimes, or very few of them still exist. But you have to ask, like, in another hundred years, is that still going to be there? Is that the kind of when you say extinction debt, that's kind of what you mean? It, it, it could still be here in our lifetime because our lifetimes, we don't really understand as well how that plays out over the centuries a plant can live. Right. That's right. Yeah. Oof, yeah. Spooky. And it's, uh, it's something that I've been thinking. So at those, those scales, uh, I've been thinking about it quite a bit because we're doing actually a, a study where we're, we're resampling a plant pollinator network on, on Pike's peak hmm. that was originally done over a hundred years ago by, um, famous plant ecologist, uh, Frederick Clements and one of his students, Francis Long, where they went out and they, um, um, recorded uh, interactions between uh, between plants and pollinators and it's it's uh, it's time scales that are that are difficult to think about sort of you know the hundred year uh, time scales and we we very seldom have those data but in some rare cases like this or <laughs> right. maybe a study that was done a hundred years ago where we can get a glimpse of um, you know what these things were like a hundred years ago 
That's lucky. And now when you talk about pollinator networks, what does that actually mean? I mean, is it the suite of all of the plants a single pollinator will visit? Or is it, you know, how many different pollinators visit one plant? Or is it kind of a combination of both, depending on what kind of questions you want to ask? Right. So, you know, if you if you think about sort of an, an interaction between a given species of, say, bee and, and plant, and that single interaction happens within the context of uh, of a community, right? So there's yeah. other pollinators visiting that plant species, and conversely, those different pollinator species are different uh, are visiting uh, different plants. And we can we can you know put all this together basically, and you know you can you can link up the you know dots, uh, uh, sort of showing who interacts with whom to sort of describe what the what this architecture of the of the community looks like with uh, with the interactions hmm. in, between species nice so you really have to kind of go in with some entomological id skills and plant id skills to really get a as close to a complete picture as you possibly can get absolutely yeah and that's a that's a real um a real challenge yeah. uh, in particular with uh, identifying the the insects so we uh, you know, we we do a lot of work uh, at the at the scope and with dichotomous keys, and also we get a lot of help with uh, from from taxonomic experts in in different groups, both with uh, for the insects and the and the pollinators. Um, but it's really fulfilling too, because sure. you you um, the the biodiversity out there is so much um greater than i could have imagined so when i when i first came out here to to colorado uh as a postdoc i was doing research at a at, the, uh, at a, a fragmentation experiment in australia but then i had my field site in australia and my field site in south carolina and i, I like to get out in the field um pretty often and it's difficult to to do that um and so you know i was in the field today so i started uh um, some field work up at the the mountain research station, which is up in the in a subalpine meadow up there, because I was interested in sort of this idea of uh, of dynamics of plant pollinator uh, uh, interactions and wanting to to collect data on those for a long time. So now we're, we're in the ninth year of it. Wow! But uh, when I started this work. I said, okay, this is some work I can do on the side. It's <laughs> subalpine. It's about it's almost ten thousand feet you know, the diversity is going to be, uh, be really low. And so identifying these insects won't be, won't be too bad, but I was really wrong. So that, so nice. we've had, I think we're at, at over 300 Ooh. species, uh, of pollinators and, um, and lots of them are really difficult to, wow. to identify, but, um, but we're building a, a nice collection now. And so now after nine years, it's becoming increasingly easier to identify this. <laughs> So that like species accumulation curve is starting to plateau, maybe. Yeah, or yeah, but every <laughs> new things keep keep popping up, and uh, you know maybe you never reach the asymptote, but it is sure. uh, fewer and fewer and fewer new things every year. That's still really cool though, because I think a lot of people listening and many that aren't probably can empathize with like you get into this because you want to go out like id is sometimes the reason we go outside we want to go look and id things and figure out what it is and to know that can still be a component of like good hard science it's enticing you know it's it's like a reminder of oh yeah i didn't do this because i like stats necessarily or i like chasing grants necessarily 
but you still get to do the things that like even as a kid we were doing. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I was motivated by the questions and probably as much I was motivated by getting out in the subalpine and these meadows here that we have here in Colorado that are just bursting with wildflowers. And um, and every time I go out there, I see something, something interesting, something new. And so it's been not just, you know, professionally, but also really personally gratifying. And I also feel very, you know, recharged whenever nice. I, I spend time out, um, spend time out in, in nature and, you know, cataloging things. And, and if I think back at, you know, if I, uh, at, um, you know, when I started out, I didn't know the names of any of the plants out there <laughs> or hardly any of the, the insects. And now, um, uh, it, it feels, it feels good to sort of know your, know your study site. Yeah. Yeah. It's making you kind of like a hometown fan, right? It's, it's tying you to this region. Right. Yeah. Excellent. And so, you know, pollinator networks and you've got this wonderful data set that you're able to look back, uh, you know, what about a century you said, how mm -hmm. do you actually go about understanding how this has changed over time, how these networks alter? I mean, is, is it literally just identifying what was there then and trying to compare that to now? Cause I, I would assume that like not everyone's doing a completely thorough job. So how do you start to try to understand how these networks are today, let alone how much they've changed over time? Yeah. And so you can zoom in into, into a different level. So you can ask, you know, simple things like, well, you know, what, what which uh, species are there? How has the species composition of the, the plants and pollinators changed? And then you can ask about how those individual interactions, so which interactions within that network uh, persist, or there is it predictable which interactions uh, uh, persist and which ones don't. And then there's also lots of um, uh, metrics that are used to describe uh, networks that have hypothesized uh, functions into how you know these these communities uh, work. And we could ask questions about how those um, those network uh, metrics have changed the the structure that might tell us about sort of how at a, at a higher level at a community level how the the community is is functioning. Nice. And so with uh, the time you've spent up there, what are some of the things you're starting to see? Are there patterns that are, you know, at least in this specific scenario starting to play out that are like, oh boy, this is interesting. I mean, it's always interesting, right? But what are you starting to find through this investigation? Yeah. So my work up at the Mountain Research Station, I've, I've just been going to the same uh, place year after year. We find uh, some some patterns that are interesting that we've also found in and in Argentina is that interactions between more generalist species, so species that that interact with a whole bunch of other species, tend to be really persistent. Hmm. Uh, so there's they're kind of like the you know the core of the of the community, uh, where as whereas you know apparently the other interactions that are that are um, more specialized, and and we tend to see this this this. Uh, pattern where generalists interact with with generalists and specialists interact with with generalists, but we don't see the uh, the specialists interacting with each other. So those more specialized interactions out at the tails of the network tend to sort of um, uh, blink in and out. Oh wow! Um, and I think that's um, and I and I think what might be the reasoning that I, that, that I'm interested in digging in uh, is is uh, to that is is that we see the pattern both across plots across years 
and within years. Wow. And so it seems that the that the species that are sort of like always around and either active or, or flowering have a, have a chance to interact with with uh, with more species. And and I think it's interesting because it kind of links to up this idea of just like a, a you know the niche something with a broad niche like maybe like a broad abiotic niche relates mm. to uh, its role in the community. Um, it also is good to remind us that so these species are also are are often very you know abundant and common, and it reminds us how important these abundant and common species are yeah. that we often um, overlook as an important as being really important because they support the rest of the of the biodiversity uh, right. within that network. So they're kind of the linchpins of the of the of the network. Right. So I think that that's been pretty neat. And then for at the longer time scales. I've actually been um, this. We haven't published any of these data yet, but I've been surprised uh, by how many of the same species on Pikes Peak that we that were observed a hundred years ago are are still there today. That's really encouraging. Yeah. So there was um, there was a similar uh, study that was done. Uh, you know, was published over uh, about ten years ago, where they did a similar study and. Um, in southern Illinois, in a much different context, in an area where where uh, they they resampled plant pollinator interactions by this guy Charles Robertson did a hundred years ago, and they compared it to what it is now. But that area has undergone a lot of habitat loss and fragmentation. So whereas you know a hundred years ago there there was a lot of you know prairie and and um, and forests, uh, now it's it's very um, agricultural and in that area it's also has a lot of suburban development but in contrast in pikes peak there's been a lot of uh growth and development in colorado springs at the base so so the the plains have seen a lot of development but there's still uh quite a bit of intact natural habitat in in pike national forest so i think it's encouraging um because it suggests that you know if we preserve these these large um natural areas with a lot of heterogeneity it's a tremendous uh, elevation gradient um you know it's a, probably our best bet to to help save biodiversity in the face of climate change right right and yeah i mean this all comes back to me for to, to biodiversity is is you know as as much as people like to throw that around really it comes down to the number of organisms unique organisms in a system and when you think of what you were just talking about there where generalists tend to stick around especially over time and space whereas the, the more specialists can wink in and out. I mean, yes, the, the generalists need to be there. If you got rid of all of the goldenrod or all of the, you know, X bumblebee that isn't rare, we'd feel that immediately. But when you think of the biodiversity crisis, everyone is starting to talk about, uh, it is those specialists winking out that really starts to bring that number down. And, you know, you think of it in the context of like invasion uh, across the globe, this idea of homogenization yes the common ones are are there and sometimes they're becoming even more abundant and everywhere is starting to look more similar uh it's mm -hmm. the losses of those unique ones that are really starting to affect and cause this biodiversity crisis and that's it's an interesting outcome because yes generalist i love it you, you're, you're supporting things you're making it work but at the same time you're like at the cost of <laughs> yeah i i think that you know often yeah it's, it's uh yeah, I, I I hear what you mean, but but it's like uh, I don't know that necessarily that trade off 
is often made where it's like by protecting a, a, a generalist or not protecting a specialist because oftentimes you know conservation efforts are more uh or you know it could be an umbrella species that that by conserving it uh conserves lots of different species or sort of an ecosystem level preservation that happens um um so that so yeah i, I think i yeah i i think that's a good point uh but then we should also remember that you know sometimes things that are really common uh you know do plummet and go extinct think right. about you know the chestnut or the passenger pigeon right. or, um or in the case of pollinators uh you know there's a species the, the western bumblebee that that used to be um you know really abundant and has been really declining um quickly in many parts of its range yeah very happy you brought that up because I think that comes back to this idea of, of we really like the rare stuff. A lot of people get very attracted to that for good reason. But that often comes as at, at, at that common stuff that are like, oh, it's over there. We'll study that later. I can't tell you how many times you talk to someone in their later, you know, later decades of life and they go, man, this was so common when I was a kid and now I never see it anymore. And like how many times could we have stepped in earlier <laughs> than too late uh, and, and done something for these supposedly now common species that, you know, it could be that debt period that we're just not really resolving it or you know just simply understanding what these species need so that when things do change we have a little bit more of something to hang our hat on and going oh maybe we need to reverse this decision guessing that yeah. people are going to listen to that in the first place yeah no it's a, it's, a, it's a really good point <laughs> yeah and so when you think about what you're facing with sort of the fragmentation side of things is and and where corridors start to play in this idea that things need to move around i mean that's a big part of corridors is is you can kind of stave off this debt by allowing an influx of species you know over time whether that be through the air water whatever you, that's what the whole idea of corridors are right is allowing smaller areas to kind of be recharged by having a highway so to speak for biodiversity to move through yeah, that's right, and and we see we see benefits across levels of, of organization from you know individual individuals moving uh, up to you know population level benefits or and community level benefits. So I think that, you know one of the coolest findings from our experiment in in South Carolina has been work uh, led by by Ellen Damshin showing that you know just the simple fact of you know these patches being connected, controlling for for area, um, means that we have increased biodiversity by something about like twenty percent in, wow. in patches being connected. That is that's a good number to have <laughs> armed with because you know that's that's what speaks volumes. At the end of the day, you want to know is it working, and so. In this scenario in South Carolina, what do these corridors look like? I mean, is it a hedgerow? Is it some uh, you know a chain of people's gardens in between these two things, or is it legitimate like right of ways where the forest is uninterrupted to the next patch? I mean, it can mean a lot of different things, I'm guessing. But in your scenario, yeah. what does that look like? So it's probably the reverse of what most people might imagine when they think about you know patches and, and corridors because they're actually um, uh, uh, cleared. Uh, open herbaceous habitat uh, cut into pine plantations. So they're basically yeah. like these squares, 100 meters by 100 meters. There's a center one and four peripheral ones, 150 meters away. And a pair of those are connected. And then those unconnected ones have um, 
have the same area of the corridor added uh, in a couple of different ways. So they're basically punched into this pine plantation. And actually this open habitat is actually uh, much closer to the to the historical nice. land cover in these uplands would have been uh, longleaf pine savanna, which much more resembles uh, what we're working on restoring these patches to uh, rather than than a pine plantation. Nice. So in, yeah. in this case, I guess then it would be sort of areas of open non-plantation land that allows some level of movement, whether that's flying, crawling, whatever, you, know, you name it. <laughs> Yeah, and it's really interesting because the you know the 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 life history traits of the species um, uh, can inform us about how because there's a really interesting temporal uh, effect too where things that are dispersed by birds uh, respond positively and very quickly, mm. and things that were, uh, are dispersed by wind or respond have a, a longer lag, and things that uh, plant species with seeds that don't disperse very well take even longer. So actually now, um, you know, a few, uh, you know, over 25 years or something into the, the experiment, we're still seeing these uh, effects and benefits of corridors um, nice. accruing. So it's uh, something that would be you know, completely missed if it was done at, at the more conventional uh, timescales that, uh, you know, these are long-term investments right. in, um, in, in connecting habitats and seeing the benefits for, for biodiversity. So glad you brought that up because in ecology, we can't afford to just only rely on the three to four year grant cycle of grad student comes in and then graduates and leaves and gets it done. It's good that that works, but to try to understand this stuff, you need time. As you talked about, there's debts, there's, there's different time scales involved with all of these different organisms. And what I love too is work like yours also is informative because it's testing theory. You're, you're, you're using good hard science to elucidate really big questions, but it, anyone could read this and go, okay, there's some practicality we can take away from this from like a habitat management perspective. Right. And you know, okay. So maybe the bird and wind stuff, they can come in on their own time, but if we really want to get some of these more, you know, ant-mediated dispersal species or you name it back, maybe that's something we have to be a little bit more involved with. And so you can kind of start to see how sort of the habitat restoration perspective can be prioritized because there's only so much funding to go around there too. So, Absolutely. Yeah. And it's so important to, uh, to make, make partnerships with, with uh, folks who can use this information. So in the corridor project, we, you know, the only reason we've been, been able to, um, do this for so long is is because of our, our partnership with uh, the U.S. Forest Service there at Savannah River. That's great. And I love, too, if you know you go on your website and you see some of the aerial imagery, it is kind of stark because, yeah, the, the assumption, and yeah, I even fall into the trap all the time, you're like, patches of forest, but like trees are good, but not everywhere, right? There's certain habitat types that are actually better without trees. And and I, I love that you're doing that because, again, it's it's this reminder, okay, we want to do something that's not the pine plantation. We, let's look at what could be there and what could come back. And I'm guessing this has been in plantation for much longer than you've been involved in the project at the very least. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and um, and and it's uh, it's so important to restore because that longleaf pine ecosystem is just you know one of the most diverse ecosystems in North America in terms of um, in terms of, of plant life and. Uh, really, really fragmented and, and suffered a lot of um, habitat loss. And so, yeah. Yeah. And so from the insect perspective, I mean, do these patterns 
obviously on different timescales play out similarly as you see with some of the plants. So more mobile insects coming back sooner, less mobile ones, maybe ants that want to stick in dense, humid understories kind of thing aren't moving across these large open patches. I mean, is it do different walks of life kind of fall into similar predictable theoretical bins, I guess? Yeah. And so I think that um, it's it was interesting uh, to do some work with, with fire ants because they have two different social forms. Uh, one that with the, the multiple queen social form that is uh, establishes at really high densities disperses really poorly. Mm. So that's the one that seemed to respond to uh, to corridors. But the single queen social form disperses really well. Um, and they disperse sort of at, at a scale that's larger than the, the experimental units. <laughs> um, and so, but we do see patterns of, of uh, the importance of connectivity uh, for ant communities at larger scales. So also during my, my PhD, I went out and sampled across the Savannah River site, which is an 80,000 hectare site, um, and sampled ant communities. And we do see that uh, that it's important, you know, how you know permeable that matrix is in terms of how uh, you know opened and thinned hmm. it is uh, is really important in determining uh, species turnover. Nice, yeah, I can imagine. There's just so many dynamics to try to consider, but it's really cool that you're able to elucidate patterns in this sort of scenario. And what's even cooler is you've mentioned multiple places in the world where you've looked at this stuff, and yet these patterns sort of creep up every now and then maybe different variations on the theme different players obviously depending on which continent or area of the continent that you're in but as an ecologist especially one working with big theory that's got to be one of those wild moments where you're like holy crap there's only so many different ways life works <laughs> we're seeing similar patterns across the globe <laughs> yeah yeah and, and you know and, and each each site you know, is really uh, idiosyncratic, and and uh, you know that's why it's also really important um, to do synthesis work across sure. uh, studies to to come up with you know what's what's a general pattern or what's just a pattern for uh, for this particular site. Yeah, I'm guessing you probably deal with a lot of noise in the data, though. So hats off <laughs> on that regard. Yeah, I think that's all of us yeah. in college. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Physics envy is real, people. Yeah. <laughs> so where do you want to take this? I mean, there's so many different ways to look at it. And like you said, there's climate change factoring into all of this. The rate of change uh, is is increasing every decade. Um, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can kind of slice this pie. And, and unfortunately, human society is really <laughs> forcing the hand on a lot of these sort of scenarios. So where is this going for you? I think that um, we're heading in the direction of prediction and 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 trying to uh, predict how different climate change scenarios uh, what they're going to mean for things like um, uh, you know biodiversity or, or um, you know uh, interactions um, between species. I think is um, is a, a really uh, important um, direction to go. And then I think that, you know, what what I would like to go to and probably what our, our field needs to go more into is is the translation of, of our science into hmm. uh, into action. Right. Right. Yeah. Because, I mean, all of these data stacking up, it's great that we get to go to conferences and talk to our colleagues about it and, and really share the science. But 
this is really where the rubber hits the pavement in terms of action is is taking those data taking the synthesis that you are all are just really working hard on doing i wanted to put an expletive in there but i stopped myself uh but to just run with it and and then teach people how this is useful because as we've already hinted at disturbance fragmentation corridors climate changes impact on all of those plant pollinator dynamics invasive species like i can't think of a larger group of things that are really affecting our lives as, as humans, whether we realize it or not. And, and data like yours and your colleagues is, is really how this is going to hopefully sort out over the next few decades. If we, you know, collectively get our heads together and and really want to do something to try to mitigate the biodiversity crisis we're heading into. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's tough. I mean, it, you you spend a lot of time in the literature. You spend a lot of time in the field. You mentioned you have a child yourself. And it, are you someone that like you see enough to be hopeful? I mean, I would hope you're hopeful. Why else would you be doing what you what you're doing? But it's so easy to feel doom and gloom in ecology. But I don't know. Sometimes I talk to people like you, and I'm like, well, there's a chance. We just have to be willing. <laughs> and and part of that comes with telling these stories. Yeah, uh, and so I, I think that you know, from our research, we we we've, we've found things that are um, that are really hopeful. So, for example, and you know what I mentioned about Pikes Peak, and you know, the, uh, yes, there there are some some changes and uh, abundances of some species, but a lot of the species are, are are still there, and so it's hopeful in the sense that you know if we you know preserve these these uh, habitat areas with a lot of heterogeneity, um, you know, biodiversity does, does pretty well. And, um, and similarly with the stories with the, the corridor project, um, you know, we see real benefits to linking up these, um, these habitat patches and uh, the sooner, the better that <laughs> right. uh, uh, those benefits uh, accrue, um, accrue over, over time. And so, um, so I think that there's, um there's there's good lessons uh in this and and i think that uh i hope that you know these these stories um inspire and, and motivate people and also just uh you know visiting natural areas so for me you know i mentioned you know personally how uh you know how how gratifying it is to visit these areas so i think about people you know visiting places like pike's peak that um sees you know thousands and thousands of visitors each year many of them who have never been on a mountain before or come from places without a lot of without a lot of natural areas and i hope that visiting these areas and seeing the the biodiversity inspires them to um, want to you know preserve their their pieces of, of nature back where they live yeah, man, totally. And, you know, I, the thing that really sticks out for me is you've got this wonderful data set separated by 100 years or more. And I would expect that number to be way lower uh, on your end of the, the time scale, But it, it's not. And that's really encouraging. So stories like this, I think, give us hope that like nature's pretty resilient. But let's let's start working sooner than later. Because, boy, I don't know how much longer uh, we can have that kind of level of, oh, hey, it's still here. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Well, Dr. Rosasco, this is fantastic. If people want to keep a finger on the pulse of this work and learn more about what you and uh, your your lab is doing and your colleagues, where do you recommend they go to find out more? Uh, so you can go to um, my lab's website. If you look up, you know, Rosasco Lab, University of Colorado, it, it should be one of the first uh, links. And we have, um, you know, papers 
that you can you can download there. We have some uh, videos um, and lots of information about what we what we have going on and uh, information for you know folks who are interested in in opportunities and joining the lab as well. Nice, yeah, it's a charming website. Love the videos and I love the PDFs. Thanks for putting PDFs up. That's <laughs> uh, really good for all the listeners. So again, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us. We really appreciate it, and I think I speak for everyone. Keep working, please. Keep telling these stories. We need people like you. <laughs> and you too, Matt. Thanks. I appreciate it. Appreciate well, it. In the meantime, enjoy the field work and uh, yeah, keep it up. All right. Take All right. care. Cheers. All right. Phenomenal work. I thank Dr. Rosasco for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us. And I hope he instilled enough messages of hope within a complex ecological world full of human disturbance to make you want to go out and support conservation efforts, especially as it relates to corridors that connect fragmented habitats of all kinds. It's not just forests. It's not just prairies. It's everything. Habitats are growing smaller and we can do a lot to help connect them again. As always, everything related to this conversation can be found in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. While you're over there, look at all of the different ways that you can chip in to support this show and make sure that indefensive plants can keep happening week after week. For instance, you can pick up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch and stickers. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, you can also become a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. All of those are great ways to ensure the show has a future. But that is entirely enough out of me. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.